I reheated lobster um, before I did this. And by the way, it was like from Red Lobster. So it's it's not even like top shelf. <laughs> so <laughs> just understand <laughs> what my life is right now. Hello, welcome to 10 Cent Takes, the podcast where we attempt to capture concepts in their corporeal form, one issue at a time. My name is Jessica Frazier, and I'm joined by my co-host, the sassy civilian, Mike Thompson. I'm a little sassy. You're pretty sassy. Mm, Fair. You're at least six feet of sass. I am six feet of sass, this is Mm. true. (laughs) <laughs> this is very true. Everyone follow Mike on Twitter at Vansau, V-A-N-S-A-U. <laughs> well, the purpose of this podcast is to study comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We want to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they're woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. Today, we are starting something very exciting. This is the premiere episode of our first book club. Yeah. yeah, we need one of those little noise horns. We are the noise horns. Here we are. So over the next five episodes, Mike and I will be discussing Neil Gaiman's The Sandman graphic novels, two volumes at a time. So this week, we read volume one, Preludes and Nocturnes, and volume two, The Doll's House. But before we delve too deep into this topic, Mike, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately? I picked up the first issue of Blue and Gold during my last trip to Brian's Comics. It's this new limited series from DC that focuses on Blue Beetle and Booster Gold teaming up and you know, whatever they're calling the current DC continuity. So these two guys, they've been regular members of the Justice League since the 80s, but they're the ones that the rest of the superheroes look down on. Basically, they're considered the goofball screw-ups by everybody else, but they're also known as the Super Buddies because their friendships become a core part of the DC Comics lore. There's Superman and Lois Lane. There's Green Lantern and uh, Hal Jordan and Carol Ferris. There's Ralph and Sue Dibney. And then there's Blue Beetle and Booster Gold. And they've just always been friends and they've always been goofballs. It's this series that's written by Dan Jurgens, who actually created Booster Gold back in the 80s. And it's drawn by Ryan Sook. We're only one issue in so far, but it's really funny. Like, one of the core things about Booster Gold is that he's always doing get-rich-quick schemes. And he (laughs) always drags Blue Beetle along. So his current thing is that he is live streaming his heroics and then trying to get viewers to donate to him while he's streaming. <laughs> and and so while all the action is playing out on the page, we're also getting a bunch of really shitty comments from the viewers. I'm not reading too many superhero books these days, but this one is definitely going on my pull list. It's great so far. I like that concept. It definitely makes it very now and relevant and feel very much like if there were superheroes yeah that could happen oh yeah totally 
I'm a little biased anyway because I've always viewed Blue Beetle and Booster as the superhero equivalent of me and my best friend. Like I am I am very much Booster Gold. I am very much the guy who kind of lucked his way into this life and then is best friends with someone who is truly just brilliant and talented and for some reason tolerates me. So anytime that I can get Blue Beetle Booster Gold stuff, I'm totally down for it. Oh, that's really fun. Yeah. What about you? What have you been uh, checking out lately? Well, I picked up a couple of $1 image comics at my local shop, and I really like the one that I've read through so far. It's called Die. Die like dice, actually. So think about it that way. Oh, wait, this is the one that's written by uh, Kyron Gillen, right? I believe so. Yeah, he's done a lot of really cool stuff. He's the guy who wrote The Wicked and the Divine. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, it's super fun so far. I mean, it's it's fun in an interesting way because it's really intense. It's centered around a group of kids who get together to play a friendly game of D&D, you know, very a la Stranger Things feeling for one of the members' birthdays. But the game takes a very real turn and the kids go missing for two years. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. totally have to check this out. That sounds great so far. Yeah, they show up all ragged. They're one member's missing an arm and one member is missing entirely. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it picks up like 25 years in the future and there's an occurrence and they all get back together and shit goes down again. So it's just, it's very good so far. Yeah. I'll have to see if I can find that. So you and I have been toying with the idea of covering the Sandman series since we first started this podcast. Correct. Yes. And I am, I'm very excited. I'm so excited to be doing what will amount to be our version of a book club? Yeah. So I'm going to give a little overview of the series itself, its popularity and notoriety, and we'll briefly go over where the Sandman can be found, both in graphic novel format, as well as other myriad ways the story can and will in future be consumed. Then we'll get into the meat of the episode and discuss our thoughts on the first two volumes of the Sandman. So just to give my experience with the story, This is the first time I'm reading the series, so I'm going into it super fresh. Oh, wow. Okay. Super, super fresh. So every, literally every turn is new for me. You and Sarah both, man. Sarah had the first two volumes loaned to her by a coworker, and so she hasn't read them yet, and I'm like, all right, you got to read these so that we can talk about it now. Yes, please, because they are very good. They are very, very good. I had originally gone and and purchased the first couple of volumes at my local comic book shop. And right. then I went back and I got the rest of them <laughs> from that same shop. <laughs> and I picked up the 30th anniversary trade paperbacks that were published through DC Vertigo or Black Label, depending on where you pick them up, interchangeable. I think Black Label is what Vertigo evolved into. Yeah. So that consists of like 10 volumes of that. Yeah. What is your experience with the Sandman series, and how will you be reading it with us? Right, so I'm reading it digitally. It's all in Hoopla right now, and Hoopla works with your local libraries. We have sung praises for that app before. It's great. I read the first couple of volumes via the Deluxe Edition, which collects both Preludes and Nocturnes and The Doll's House, and it also includes another standalone graphic novel called The Sandman Midnight Theater which it isn't part of our book club, but I read through that too. But it's like almost 600 pages, I think, and it's got a bunch of notes at the end and sketches and things like that as well. 
I started reading comics right around the time that the Sandman was first getting published. So I had a vague awareness of it just because DC would run ads for it in other books, particularly their popular superhero lines. But I was like, you know, eight or nine around that time, and they were really marketing it as a horror comic. There's no way that I really could have read it even if I wanted to. Like, stores wouldn't have sold it to me. But also when you're that young, you know, horror stories aren't really what you're looking for. And I remember very vividly one of the ads was Morpheus, and it said, I will show you terror in a handful of dust. You know, so it definitely looked a little creepy. Yeah. But yeah, um, my best friend actually introduced me to Neil Gaiman, like as an author, when he gave me Good Omens, the book that the TV show is based on, because we were both really big fans of Terry Pratchett. And so I read a couple of other novels by Neil Gaiman as well. And then when I had my first job after high school as a student librarian, I was actually shelving the Sandman books and wound up thinking it looked kind of cool. And I read it and then I devoured the rest of the series over a couple of weeks and then started consuming anything else by Neil Gaiman that I could. So I've read the series a couple of times since then. I think the most recent was about, oh, I want to say like eight years ago. When I was going through a divorce and I had a lot of free time on my hand at home alone, so I started rereading the things that I really liked. I think that's a good move. Yeah. So, top of the order, you know it's time for some resources. So, credit to an article on GQ.com titled Sandman, A Beginner's Guide. And the Wikipedia article about the Sandman series, which was most informative. First and foremost, this series is critically acclaimed and popular worldwide. It was one of the first graphic novels to be on the New York Times bestsellers list and was one of five graphic novels to make it onto Entertainment Weekly's list of 100 best reads from 1983 to 2008, ranking at number 46. I think it also may have won a Nebula or a Hugo Award, but I'm not certain about that. I know that It won some prestigious literary award, and basically everybody was really upset that a comic book won that, and so they changed the rules after that so that comics couldn't win it anymore. I think it was the Hugos. No. No, it wasn't. Maybe Nebula? Hold on. We may need to strike this. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's going to bother you now, because I know how that is. Oh, yeah. No, it's Yeah. (laughs) You're just like me. I know how this is. Oh, it was the World Fantasy Award, the 1991 Awards, graphic novel The Sandman, won the award for Best Short Story. Uh, The rules were subsequently changed to prevent another graphic novel from winning. (sighs) Oh my God, why can't people just let people like things? I just, I don't get it. I don't know. You can't be a part of our club. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so. So it won that too. Much to the dismay of some. Yeah, that's kind of amazing. Like, chef's kiss. Oh, this just makes me love this even more. (laughs) I mentioned earlier that there are different ways that this storyline can be accessed. Like Mike said earlier, we've had success locating many of the versions actually on Hoopla. Mm Mm-hmm. And as I've shared, I've gone the route of picking up the 10 softcover single volume trade books. There is a set of four hardcover books in a collection titled The Absolute Sandman, but this version was recolorized, which faced some definite controversy within the established fan base. 
Yeah, that never goes over well. Like, DC's done that a few times with some books. There was also Alan Moore's The Killing Joke, and they recolored Brian Ballin's art, and it was not well received a few years ago. You sent me a couple of the side-by-sides or an article about it. That was, I kind of get why people were upset, but not really, because it's just like, let people do things. I don't know. Let yeah. people think things. It's one of those things where when you're so used to it and then you see a change where even if it's not necessarily bad, it's one of those things where it's like, this is different and I don't like it. And they change something that I love. So, yeah, it's kind of like people getting upset at uh, they don't let the pirates chase women anymore. It's like, are, are you hearing yourself? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> oh, there is another four book hardback series titled The Annotated Sandman which is in its original coloring and contains a ton of tidbits and notes about the creation of the series. So I think, I think they may have said deluxe at some point too on one of these so that this may even be the version that you're checking. That out. very well might be. Yeah. Because you were saying there were like little extra ditties and stuff. And that yeah. sounds a lot like what they were doing here. There's also the Sandman omnibus which is published in two large hardcover books, but also uses three colorized pages. So, Mike, if we're reading different versions, there's actually a chance we're not seeing the same thing. Yeah, I don't think any of the core art is changed, though. It's, I think what we're, what we're experiencing is just slightly different versions. The core content is still all there. Yeah. For those of you wanting to experience the story outside of graphic novel format, Audible released a full cast audio version of the first three volumes of The Sandman just this hmm. last year in 2020. Yeah. Oh, I think I saw something about that, but I haven't listened to it at all. I haven't either because I knew I wanted to read this, so I didn't want to spoil the graphic novel for myself because I'm just that way. I hate spoilers. Hmm. Also, I'm very excited that there is a Sandman series in the works, though we don't have a release date as of when we're recording this right now. Yeah, I believe that's a Netflix original TV show. And so I think excited. they've I think they've wrapped filming on it at this point. I'm oh, really, really stoked about it. And also a lot of nerds were really mad at some of the casting and tried to get into fights with Neil Gaiman and he he very both brutally and beautifully shut them down on Twitter. It was delightful. Neil Gaiman is a fucking treasure of a human being, and I will fight anyone that says otherwise. He's like Weird Al. He's not allowed to turn out to be terrible. Yeah, and he comes around here sometimes. Like, I saw him live. He was at the LBC, and he is a fantastic speaker. It was just, it was like a night with Neil Gaiman, and I was like, he was like reading us stuff and answering questions, and it was cool. That's rad. Yeah. Yeah, so I will tell you guys when I see that up next, like, after gestures vaguely. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Remember when we uh remember when we went outside and did stuff? Remember when we could plan to see people in person live? Remember those halcyon days? Kids these days will never know <laughs> what it was like back in the day for us. I'll never know how good they have it. <laughs> They'll never know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm also really interested to see who they cast to play the different roles. I haven't looked yet, because I also kind of just, I don't know, I don't like to watch stuff either. So, <laughs> and we'll see what the overall tone and color scheme is like, because I'm always really interested to see how they do that in TV. Mm. And also, the show Lucifer 
is loosely based on this universe as well. Yeah, it's so Lucifer shows up repeatedly through the series and then he got his own spinoff series that was written by Mike Carey in the 90s. And it ran for 75 issues plus or minus. I think there may be an annual or a special. And it's again like the Sandman where it is one writer guiding the story and it's excellent. Like the way that Lucifer ends as a series made me just sit and think for a while afterwards. And there's very few series that actually do that for me. The Sandman is another one. Nice. Oh, I just, I keep getting more and more excited about the next volumes that are just sitting waiting for me. But here we go onward. (laughs) (laughs) All right. My body is ready. Now, okay, wait, before you get too excited about it, a little history on how this wildly popular series came to fruition, because it's a fun story. Neil Gaiman himself actually proposed reviving the Sandman series that had been published by DC between 1974 and 76, and had been written by Joe Simon and Michael Fleischer, and illustrated by Jack Kirby, of course, Mm -hmm. and Ernie Chua. And while Gaiman's proposal wasn't picked up at first, he just had the itch and started working on ideas, sketches, and characters, and some outlines for the world he was building in his mind. Gaiman ended up mentioning his interest in Pet Project to DC editor Karen Berger, and I found this great quote from Wikipedia about how the Sandman story proposal came about. Will you do us the favor of reading this? Sure. While months later, Berger offered Gaiman a comic title to work on, he was unsure his Sandman pitch would be accepted. Weeks later, Berger asked Gaiman if he was interested in doing a Sandman series. Gaiman recalled, I said, um, yes, yes, definitely. What's the catch? Berger said, there's only one. We'd like a new Sandman. Keep the name, but the rest is up to you. That's awesome. What a, what a carte blanche to be given. Yeah. So he did just that. He created an entirely new world within that of DC for the Sandman to inhabit. Gaiman also had other help from DC, getting suggestions on artists with a variety of specialized skills to help really bring the story to life. Sam Keith was brought on as the series' artist, Mike Dringenberg as the inker, Todd Klein as the letterer, Robbie Bush as the colorist, and Dave McKean as the cover artist. One factoid I found really interesting is that McKean's technique in designing cover art was considered unconventional, and he actually had to convince Berger that the protagonist didn't always have to be on the cover of every issue. I think that's a really bold move to start going in that direction when designing cover art, and I can understand from a business perspective, the idea of not featuring the protagonist on the cover of the issue can feel really risky. Oh, yeah. Not only that, but covers in general are used to sell like the really dramatic moment of whatever is happening in the story. With our episode about Superboy, we were talking about how they have that huge dramatic thing where he's losing a tug of war with Merlin, it turns out, and it winds up being one or two panels in the actual story. But, you know, it's a dramatic moment. Meanwhile, basically, DC was doing these kind of avant-garde covers, and that was, as you said, bold. Yeah. Well, what did you think of the covers of the issues? My opinion has evolved over time. I originally didn't like them mainly because I came into comics during the era of the superstar comic artists, and I didn't really appreciate anything that deviated from that particular style. That said, now I really like how they feel 
kind of dreamlike in their own way. I always think they reflect how we remember dreams in these sort of scattershot, fuzzy memories. And I think they really fit the overall tone of the series. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I thought they were really neat. They were very eerie and made me want to find out what happened. You know, what what was the reason that that was the cover? Yeah, and Dave McKean's art is really interesting if you ever go and check it out. I've got a couple of his books. I think he was involved in that movie Mirror Mask that Jim Henson Productions did a few, like, not a few. They did it about 15 years ago now, I think. Yeah. But he has a a really unique art style that is oftentimes very fascinating, but also oftentimes very creepy. I love creepy, so bring it. Well, listen, I know it's early on in the history, but we've already reached the point in the story where the new Sandman creative dream team would hit a dramatic bump in the road. Because, as we've discussed before, comics evidently incite drama. It's almost like you've got a bunch of artists working together, and they all have very strong opinions about how things should happen. Weird. (laughs) This was Gaiman and a few of the other artists' first time doing a series, and Keith quit after the fifth issue. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. He has gone on to do a number of comics that, if I remember right, deal with mental health and and things like that. And he's had a very unorthodox life himself, as I recall. He created a character called the Max, who, it was a couple of years later, and there were a lot of really intense adult themes about abuse and, and trauma. If I remember right. It's been a while since I read that. Oh, yeah. So maybe it just wasn't a good fit to be working on something like this. There was a bit of a swap as his position was filled by Dringenberg as penciler and Malcolm Jones III was hired as anchor. Because of the team's relative lack of experience, Gaming considers the first few issues awkward. It's really kind of encouraging to see people whom I consider to be really successful sharing that they have experienced bumps in the road or doubt in their abilities or question an outcome or aspects of their work. Mm -hmm. It's not only refreshing, I think it has the ability to inspire others to persevere through similar feelings while creating themselves. If I remember right, Gaiman has a whole story about this where he was at some award ceremony and he was talking to this guy who was, I believe, the guest of honor and basically felt that he hadn't done much to really earn the acclaim that he was receiving and then i think it was neil armstrong that he was talking to or or some it was an astronaut it was one of the astronauts who took a step on the moon but neil gaiman is one of those people where he tells these stories and they always make you feel better well this brings us to our main topic of conversation which is discussing the first two volumes of the sandman series taking them one volume at a time so volume one is titled Prelude and Nocturnes, and it hit shelves November 29, 1988, but was cover dated January 1989. It's a compilation of the first eight issues. The main plot follows Dream, also known as Morpheus, who is captured by mortals attempting to capture death. And Dream is held for many years, over many generations, and during this time, the Dream world, and with it the world of mortals, begins to fall apart in different ways. Yeah. In the mortal realm, this manifests as people struggling to either sleep or stay awake. And it's this sleeping sickness. Most people go to sleep and they don't really wake up. 
for Unity Kincaid, who was just a child when she fell ill with a sleeping sickness, this was not only a loss of her childhood, but it was also a loss of her ability to choose, as she is raped and subsequently bears a child, all while asleep. We later learn that the Dream Realm also suffered consequences due to the incarceration of its monarch. After having to sit idly, losing strength, watching generations of his captors come into this world and die, Dream manages to escape from the confines of his prison, but is very weak and is missing items that are necessary for him to fully regain his strength, and will allow him to once again be the king of the Dream Realm. These items are his helmet, his amulet, and his pouch of sand. Dream pops in and out of the Dream Realm, and other DC cities like Gotham, and is visited by DC characters like John Constantine and Martian Manhunter along the way, striving to right the damage that has been caused during his captivity. We end the book meeting Morpheus' sister, Death, who is out there just casually reaping, as you do, and beginning to learn about her existence and role in this world, which looks a lot different than the doom and gloom notion that we are usually faced with in literature and media. Yeah. What was your overall impression of the story and who were your favorite and least favorite characters or events? You know, it's funny because it's been almost a decade since I last read the series. And I always forget how early on this is very much a horror story with some fantasy trim. Like Morpheus is captured by an Aleister Crowley wannabe. In fact, it's noted that that this guy who summons him and traps him in this glass bottle is a rival of Crowley's. And Morpheus himself is first kind of this alien being, and then he becomes pretty terrifying at times and is shown to be monstrously cruel when he's angry. Like when he finally escapes, he confronts Alex, the son of the man who imprisoned him, and punishes him with an eternity of waking nightmares, which I thought was just awful. Oh, yeah. You know, or there's the bit where afterwards when he goes to reclaim his helm, he has to go to hell and he sees the woman that he condemned there and then refuses to free her when she begs. It's really hard to like him, honestly. And I still have a really tough time reading the issue where Dr. Destiny takes a diner hostage and uses the Ruby basically to just torment this diner full of people at like. I still, this time, was squirming when they were confessing the worst things that they've done to each other. Like, it was profoundly uncomfortable. And then at the same time, I really loved the reality duel that he gets into in hell and just how creative a scene that was because it wasn't your typical, you know, fighting the bad guys moment. I thought it was just, it was so beautifully done and the way it concluded was so clever. Yeah. And then there's the issue with John Constantine helping Morpheus find his dream dust It was one of my favorite moments in that volume because it actually shows, A, Constantine being a decent human being instead of an utterly ruthless bastard like he normally is portrayed. And then that's really the first moment of kindness that Dream shows to anybody is when he sends John's ex-girlfriend off to death on a dream where everything is good and she's with the man that she loves still. Yeah. And then afterwards, Constantine asks for a favor to make the nightmares that he's been suffering for the past decade stop. There were a lot of small moments like that that I really appreciated. It, was, it wasn't the big ones, but it was just it was these, these small moments that gave you a lot of insight into these characters that I really, really appreciated. There was a lot of subtlety and nuance. Yeah, which I mean, also incredibly uncommon for early issues, especially in that era. They also made a point of showing that this is connected to the DC universe, but it's largely separate because it's not telling a superhero story. Yeah, and that is how it felt because they would bring up little tidbits, like they would just randomly casually say something about Gotham. 
or, you know, something about Superman would be on a billboard, but a billboard that's like peeling off, you know, it. <laughs> yeah. Or there's the moment where he visits the Justice League headquarters and talks to Mr. Miracle and then Mr. Miracle brings him to talk to the Martian Manhunter. And I thought that was really cool, too, because it shows how everybody perceives Morpheus differently because you see him as the god of dreams for the Martians. Yeah. Well, my favorite character was definitely Death. Yeah. And I know we only got a little bit of her at the end, but I love this take on her, having her be the helpful and gentle, but a little bit punk Mm -hmm. kind of little sister leading you off. It just, it's just such a refreshing change from the scary reaper toting figure that we normally associate with death. Death is always, I think, one of the best characters in the DC universe. And they eventually brought her into the DC universe, like where she met Lex Luthor and a bunch of other people a few years ago. But good for her. I was really worried, actually, that they were going to try to make her a combatant or something like that. But it was it was good. They kept her kind of in keeping with what Neil Gaiman had created. Oh, that's good. I also really like the concept of the, the whole world being sent into a state of chaos because of the lack of ability to dream. Mm hmm. It went beyond the ability to fully rest. It was like people were also missing hope and creativity while Morpheus was being detained. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about the cover art and the art in general, but what was your favorite art moment of this first issue? Like, was there a panel or cover that really stood out to you or hit you in some kind of way? There's a couple of moments that really stand out to me, but usually it's more because of the storytelling than the art itself. That scene towards the end, though, where Dr. Destiny blasts Morpheus with the Dreamstone while they're in the Dreaming and it looks like Morpheus might actually be dead really stood out to me. And that's because immediately after that, we see D standing in this field of complete white, and it feels like he might have actually been successful in his attempt to murder the Lord of Dreams. And then it turns out he's standing on the palm of Morpheus's hand. It was a couple of really striking images that do so much to up the drama I felt yeah what about you I mean I was really taken by the whole thing but one of the first panels where it was just dream like once he had just gotten out and there was just a full page of him having gotten out you could just you could feel the energy coming from that page Mm -hmm. and it was just such a really cool page yeah You know, I I love movement within comics. If I can feel where the movement's going, I'm a a huge fan of that. But there was something about this full panel that was just like, it was just wild. That is actually one of Keith's strengths. He's got this unusual kind of visual style with his pencils, but he conveys movement and kind of natural fluidity of motion really well. Yeah. Well, let's move on to volume two. What do you say? Sure. So volume two is titled The Doll's House and was published from 1989 to 1990, and it included issues nine through 16 of the series. So Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III were back to illustrate this volume along with Chris Boccolo, Michael mm-hmm. Zuli, and Steve Parkhouse. Boccolo is one of my all-time favorite artists. He oh. does incredible, complicated artwork. I don't think there's anyone else like him. He actually illustrated a couple of graphic novels or miniseries about death that Neil Gaiman wrote. Oh, nice. Well, volume two starts off with a young man being taken into the desert as a rite of passage and told a story that was handed down to the men in their lineage. 
and it's the ill-fated love story about Dream and a human, Queen Nada. Yep. Dream's siblings desire to spare outside of the Dream, exposit about a vortex in the Dream realm. And we then get to see Morpheus visiting his realm and observing different ways it had changed since he had been there last. Right. He finds that certain characters of his realm are missing. Womp womp. And then upon Morpheus's return to his realm, Unity Kincaid awoke with the other sleepers. And she awoke with the understanding that she had a child. She remembered it pretty vividly at this point, which was super interesting. Yeah. And she, at this point, desperately wanted to find her. Unity was an old woman at this point. When she woke up, it's really sad, having lost most of her life to the sleeping sickness. So she used a PI, found her daughter Miranda, got in touch with her under different pretenses, and invited her and her daughter Rose to England, where Unity lived, and revealed to them that she was their mother slash grandmother. There was some drama with Rose's brother Jed needing to be found, and Rose went off back to the U.S. to find him where she ends up moving into a house with a bunch of really eclectic folks. Like, eclectic in different ways. I love them. Yeah, there's a, there's an otherworldliness to it. Definitely is. One of the housemates was named Gilbert, and let's just think of him as your next-door neckbeard neighbor who really, really enjoys memorizing poetry, tries to absolutely live the idea of chivalry and very likely has a replica renaissance sword collection in his apartment do i have that right yeah no he's that guy who has a very enthusiastic taste for life and has found the things that he really loves and wants to tell you all about them and then he invites himself along (laughs) with rose on her adventure (laughs) we have a neighbor like that we love him but but I was sitting there and I was rereading this and I was going, oh, yeah, no, that's our that's our neighbor. All right. <laughs> so Rose gets a lead on her brother. And after a dream about him being really poorly treated by his foster parents, then feels an even bigger spark of, hey, I need to find him. And on their way to finding Jed, they stop at a hotel where there's a literal serial killer convention going on. But, <laughs> but it's operating under the pretense of a cereal convention, like the breakfast food, which I thought was just so good. I don't remember if I caught that before. The puns were something else. Oh, it was so good. <laughs> oh, before the serial killer convention, Morpheus actually finds Jed because Jed is being used as a host mm. for two of his errant dreams. Yes. And that is where we meet Hector and Lita Hall who are established DC characters. Hector Hall was Dr. Fate back in the early 80s, and then he died. And so his ghost has been kept around in the dreaming, basically. But it's not part of the dreaming because Jed has been removed from the dreaming. Brute and Glob. But Brute and Glob used Jed as an island for them to survive outside of the dreaming, away from Morpheus. Basically, they set up shop in this kid's head where he becomes sort of a safe house for them outside of Morpheus's influence. And then they have Hector and Lita living in this kid's dreams. It's weird because they, they do these little Nemo dream sequences that are very cute in Kitty, and then he wakes up and he's in this horrifically abusive situation where he's being forced to live in the basement and his foster parents are just awful people. And then at yeah. the end, Morpheus shows up and rescues Jed. Well, 
sort of rescues them. Not really. I think he like he gets them out of that current situation, but he gets distracted dealing with Brute and Glob. He winds up confronting Hector and Lita Hall, and because Hector's a ghost, he basically sends him on his way, which makes Lita into basically Morpheus's sworn enemy. And then he tells her, like, you are pregnant with a baby, and that baby has been gestating in the dreams. So someday I'm coming for that kid, and he's going to be mine. Which we'll, we will return to later on in the series. <laughs> Eyes on you, Lita. Yeah, and then Jed meets the Corinthian, who is on his way to the serial convention. There was a lot that happened in this. I was trying to sum it back up, and I was like, I'm going to miss something. <laughs> it is a really dense story arc. It's great. Like, it, it never feels slow or tedious or anything, but it is. There's a lot. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree. So at this convention, Gilbert recognizes a man named the Corinthian, who he knows to be also from the dream realm. Am I right about that? Yes, but it's not explained originally how he knows that. Yeah, he just kind of knows he's bad news. I kind of was putting the pieces together. I'm intuitive. Listen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but but when they first encounter the Corinthian, it's the Corinthian is distracted because there is someone who has infiltrated the serial killer convention. That is not a killer. And so he is focused on that talking with the guy who runs the convention. And Gilbert is in this elevator with Rose. And Gilbert very pointedly puts his hat in front of his face and is trying to shrink and basically trying to make himself as small as possible to avoid notice, which is such a great moment because he is a big dude. Like in in every sense of the word, he is big and he is strong, but he also looks like maybe he should cut back on the carbs just a little bit. (laughs) But yeah, and so all you know is that he knows that there's something bad about this guy. And he's worried for Rose, and so he, yeah. you don't see the name, but he writes a name on a piece of paper and he hands it to her and he says, only say this, if you're really in trouble, say this name, basically, kind of a yeah. thing. And then, of course, two minutes later, she is <laughs> in yeah. trouble, I mean, because one of the serial killers is, like, wanting to snack her up. Yeah, we and... should probably <laughs> talk about that a little bit, about how... Let's do it. The thing about the Sandman is, like I said, in a lot of ways, it's a horror story. And it gets very uncomfortable at times because they talk about things like rape or torture or pedophilia. And so this guy who is a killer, like, they don't outright state that he sexually abuses kids before he kills them, but it's implied pretty heavily. And he becomes obsessed with Rose because she looks so young. And so what happens is he can't control his urges and he follows Rose back to her room. And basically busts down the door. And he makes, like, doesn't he make some comment about, like, you don't need your clothes anymore or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. It is always uncomfortable, but it never feels, it does never feel gross. Like, it doesn't make me regret reading it. It feels like it is, it is well done. Yeah. Yeah. But it is uncomfortable and it, and it's, it's scary. I mean, yeah. it, it was scary for me as a woman. I've, I've been in situations where I felt threatened, not maybe by a serial killer, but threatened in a very similar way, you know? So I could definitely put myself in that position and be like, yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah. And the artistic choices they made where they show him looming over her and he's already a big guy, Mm -hmm. they were done for maximum effect to really increase that feeling of discomfort. And it was really effective. It absolutely was. So she says the name Morpheus and he, of course, swoops in and saves her mm-hmm. um, but later explains that he will have to kill her because guess what she's the vortex and 
she goes to sleep one night and she's making all the walls of all the dreams fall down and all the people's dreams are merging and there's fuckery. <laughs> yeah. And we're shown that by the the tenants of the house that she's been staying at, we see all their different dreams and how they all start to blend together a little bit. It was uh, it was really interesting because they were all drawn in totally different styles and then they start to overlap with each other, which was kind of cool. Yeah. That was super cool. I really, really liked how that was done. Yeah. So Dream tells Rose that this whole vortex process being cyclical, having happened a multitude of times already to different people over time, all people that Morpheus had to kill in order to save the Dream Realm. Yeah. So Unity, who is again very aged, is on her deathbed at this point and offers herself to Morpheus instead of Rose. Turns out, Unity was supposed to be the Vortex the whole time. But because she had a dreamless sleep, and the, the Vortex was passed down to Rose after skipping a generation, because that's when everyone woke up. Yeah. So Unity was able to successfully swap places with Rose, dying in her place. Morpheus then confronts Desire, giving a quip to the effect of this has your smell all over it, and Desire admits to causing Unity's rape in order to continue her line and cause the Vortex to skip. Right? Am I right about that? Here's the thing is that this is where we start to get a look at the dynamics among Dream and his siblings. And we previously met Death, but then we also, in this one, we meet Despair and Desire. And they are not really big fans of Morpheus. And we're not sure why right now. But when Morpheus confronts Desire, he sits there and calls Desire out and says that they clearly, it is not stated that they raped Unity Kincaid, but she was raped. I mean, we got to get down to those brass tacks. because I mean, she, she was, was asleep. She was asleep. She was an unwilling <laughs> victim in all this. So yeah. Desire raped Unity when she was basically comatose. And as a result, the Vortex was a family member of the Endless. And Dream sits there and basically says, I know what you were trying to do. You were trying to get me to kill one of our one of our family. And the laws are very clear about this. Which, again, th this is going to be something that comes back later on. But for a new reader, it's not entirely clear. There's a lot of reading between the lines of it. It's a scene that actually plays really interestingly because... We don't know the dynamics between these siblings. All we know is they're, they're these kind of abstract concepts that are personified. And so Dream and Death are really good friends. And then it's also hinted at that they're among the older siblings, because when Despair and Desire first meet up, they're talking about it. And they mention being, I think, the younger siblings or, or that Dream and Death are the older ones. Uh, and then I think Dream also mentions another sibling of theirs who's going to show up called Destiny. They all start with Ds. Mm -hmm. I believe there are six siblings who, who appear throughout the series. And then there's one who is missing, who is referred to as the Prodigal, who basically abdicated his station. And we'll find out more about him later on. But I don't, I don't want to spoil too much, but it's like, you know. Oh, oh we'll get there. We will yeah. get there. <laughs> Give us a few episodes. <laughs> but then also we get in between the moment where Morpheus takes Unity as the Vortex instead and him confronting Desire. We get the epilogue where Rose starts documenting what happened with letters to, um, I can't remember who it is that she's writing to, 
but she's writing letters and she's talking about the fates of all the different tenants of the house and how things have worked out, how one couple have stayed together and one of them is opening up. There's, um, I think it was, a. am not sure if, if the landlord is trans or just does drag. I couldn't tell that either. I can't remember, to be honest. Well, and there was some weird, like, lack of control about it, too. It almost felt like it was an urge or a different person that came out when he was doing drag, which was interesting. It felt almost like a drag personality, you know, or persona. But like, but more than that, because it felt like almost like a split personality, like he almost couldn't control it. Like, oh, Dolly's out now. Yeah. Because they had that whole conversation. One of the tenants was like, Am I okay to bring by my mom? You know, she's very conservative. We are not. She's very you know? straight. <laughs> yeah. That was and that was Ken and Barbie who were this like yuppie couple. And yeah. then Ken like you see based on the dreams, Ken is like super eighties yuppie, like Wall Street, you know. Gordon Gecko, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very very much of that like type where where Gordon Gecko is an aspiration and not a cautionary tale. <laughs> And then Barbie, it turns out, is kind of a a hippie fantasy weirdo, which I kind of love, too. I thought that was so fun. What were your overall impressions of the story, and who were your favorite and least favorite characters or events of this volume? So I really appreciated how this circled back to a number of story crumbs that had been kind of left out. They'd just been sort of scattered about a bit in the first volume, and then it picked them up and it ran with them. I liked how we saw the consequences of Unity Kincaid's rape and A, how it gave us the character of Rose and B, we learn how just absolutely monstrous desire is. And, and I also liked that it showed how they have this antagonistic relationship with Dream. I also felt like the story arc made Dream into a, more of a relatable character, especially because we have that single issue, Men of Good Fortune, which is a story on its own in the middle of this whole arc that it's kind of like a, a breather from all the intense storytelling that's going on. That is when we're introduced both to Hob Gadling and Joanna Constantine, who Joanna is obviously an ancestor of John Constantine. And it was such a dumb joke, but I, I always laugh when I see this, where Hob sits there and refers to, he knew a Jack Constantine who was a cunning man. And I didn't know this the first time I read it, but it turns out a cunning man is basically another term for like a sorcerer oh that makes sense it's one of those things now where i'm like oh oh a double entendre there okay i like it (laughs) yeah i don't know if hob is going to be in the upcoming tv show but i know that they cast joanna and i'm really excited because that means we're going to see some period episodes probably because she's from the 18th century i think As tough as some of those moments were during the sequences that take place in the serial convention, which, again, I still love the the play on words with the serial being a convention full of serial killers. I really love the revelation of the Corinthians' true appearance and then his nature as this flawed nightmare who went rogue. Like, I thought all that was rad. Oh, yeah, that was a really interesting storyline for sure. And just he was he's a cool character. I mean, he's not. Not cool, cool. Like, I wouldn't invite him to a party, but interesting character, at least. For me, this is when the story, kind of like you said, it started becoming cohesive and something I could actually follow. Yeah. I enjoy the fact that some of the pieces of the puzzle that we saw in volume one, to your point, started being pushed into place. And I started to realize, oh, okay, that's why we were bringing that up, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know? I really like that Zelda and Chantel, they were just such a vibe. 
and you could just oh. the spider women of the house. Yes, like walk around wearing veils and shit. I was like, come on, can you not see me doing that when I'm older? Can you not see me doing that now? I mean, you and Sarah both. Yeah. We have a wall in our bedroom that Sarah describes it as, yeah, it's my witch wall. She has these little shelves and she's like, this is where I put my witchy shit. I mean, there is a reason that Sarah and I went and did taxidermy together. Yeah. You know, and meanwhile, I have a bunch of comic book volumes sitting underneath. It's great. <laughs> the perfect blending of our two aesthetics <laughs> also about the serial killer convention the level of cheese was extreme and i really went between loving the puns to hating them and then back around again and ultimately i, I did land with being really tickled by the dad jokes and really appreciating that they, they had a really good female representation in the killers <laughs> <laughs> that was great. They had a whole seminar of women that kill. And I was like, yeah, ladies, bring it. Oh, shit. No, these are OK. No, no, no. Back off. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also it was like making it pay, I think, was the name of one panel where it was basically serial yeah. killers talking about how to ransom people. <laughs> it was really clever. And they had a, they had movie nights. Yeah, it was really fun. What about art? Did you have a favorite moment in this volume? Yeah. So one of them, again, is really small. And then the other one was a much bigger moment. And it's going back to what we talked about just a minute ago. So in Men of Good Fortune, there's that moment where Hob is at his third sit down with Morpheus. And he has gone from having centuries of good fortune and wealth to scraping by. And he talks about, do you know how hungry you get when you can't die from hunger, basically, or can't die from starvation? Yeah. And he says something along the lines of, like, I've hated every moment of the last 80 years. And Morpheus just goes, well, does that mean that you uh, that you want to give up meeting with me and, and have death come take you? And he has that moment where it's like you get three very distinct facial expressions where you can tell that he's thinking about it for a second. And then he gets this smirk and he basically says, are you crazy? Death's a mugs game. And he goes, I've got so much to live for. And... I don't know why, but that's one of the defining moments in this entire series that I always think of. And then the other one was the revelation of the Corinthian, where he takes off his sunglasses, and it's revealed that he's got mouths for eyes with chomping teeth. Fucking horrifying. And it's such a small thing, but it's really creepy. Oh, super cool. I actually stared at those panels a little bit longer than I needed to, and it really <laughs> creeped myself out. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's a really cool, clever, and effective character design. Yeah. What about you? You touched upon this a little bit earlier, but I really like how they made everyone's dreams look different. And it was the style of the drawing, the coloring, the different ways their dreams took shape. Some were just words you know, mm -hmm. scrambled looking thoughts, and others were incredibly detailed and followed a mostly cohesive story. Mm -hmm. And I also really liked how their word bubbles were different. Yeah. And the texts that were in their bubbles. And throughout the story, throughout both the volumes so far, Dream has always had his word bubbles as ragged edged and white on black instead of the reverse, which is, you know, usually the characters are following the, the standard white bubbles with black lettering. And so it was a really interesting concept to see everybody getting their own text and their own fonts. And it's happened a couple of times, like Lucifer has his own font. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it's just plain Jane, this is what you get, other than 
Morpheus. Yeah. So it was neat to see everybody else get their own personalities within the actual words that were taking shape. Yeah, and if I remember right, that wasn't something that was really being commonly done back then. They would sometimes do things like that for dramatic effect, but for the most part, speech bubbles were pretty uniform. These days, you see it pretty commonly, like, you know, the Asgardians and Marvel have their own font, as well as Skrulls. But it was one of those things where speech and lettering was all pretty uniform back then. Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was neat. I'm I'm interested to see what else they do with it as they go more into the dream realm or as they meet other people as well. Yeah. What do you think about moving on to our brain wrinkles? Yeah, sure. What's been stuck up in your noggin, Mike? A couple of different things, but the one that's currently sitting with me is this morning the new trailer for The Eternals dropped from Marvel. Like, I know that you don't watch trailers, but I'm not going to lie. I got to say, I'm pretty excited about it. It looks and feels very different in a lot of ways from the other Marvel movies that we've received. Based on that and also the promotional stuff they've been doing for Shang-Chi, I think the MCU is about to get a lot more diverse and mature in terms of both storytelling and visual design. And also just with the people that they have making and starring in these movies. And I'm extremely here for it. Like, my stepson is biracial, and he got really interested when he saw a commercial for Shang-Chi. I think I'm going to have to buy that when it comes out or rent it so that we can watch it together. Yeah. Because we can't go to a movie theater yet, but... Yeah, not just yet. But we can do a movie night in. It's so important for people to be represented, and we only represent a very small portion of our populace at this point in time and that that needs to change and i do like that it is well you talked about this a little bit last week yeah it's it's really been cool like we've been watching a lot of stuff lately where people of color are making media and the second season of the terror the tv show from ridley scott it's a horror anthology series where each season tells a different overarching horror story the second season is framed with world war ii and the japanese internment And it deals with the Japanese spirit haunting a group of Japanese Americans who are partway through put in the internment camps. And then she continues to haunt them there as well. And it's really cool. And then the very end shows the credits and the people who were involved in the filming. And a lot of them are Japanese American. And it shows them. And then it shows their parents or their grandparents who were in the camps or who fought in World War II or worked as interpreters. And then the last one that they show, because it's these little snapshots, it's George Takei, because he's one of the main actors. And then it shows him as a little boy in the internment camps. And it was so powerful and moving. And media is made for people like you and me right now. Like, we are white. Yeah. You can't get around that. And yeah, it makes me so happy to see other people view media and have that same relationship where they suddenly are like, oh, I can relate to that because that's me up there. Tom up at Outer Plains, he went viral a few years ago because he drew a little comic of two little black kids pointing at the Black Panther poster and saying, that's me. And Marvel made it the cover for their new Black Panther series first issue. Like, that's how I met him was he was signing copies of that and we wound up talking for a while. Oh, Tom's great. Yeah. Like, at some point he's going to come on the podcast and we're going to talk about whatever he wants to talk about. I'm really excited about that. 
he and I have talked several times about he's he literally has told me he'll talk about anything. <laughs> so I'm excited to have him on, too. I'm so stoked. And he is one of my favorite people. And I cannot express how excited I am for him to show up with us at some point. But it just it makes me really happy when I see more people feeling included. And I don't understand why certain people get all butthurt about it. Well, I think that there's a misconception that if you start representing other groups, you're going to stop being represented yourself. Yeah. But I got to tell you, like, you're white. You're still going to be represented. Yeah. Like, honestly, there's no way around that. It, it doesn't matter. That's unfortunately the culture we live in. It's very white domineering and letting other people. This isn't pie. You know, it's yeah. not like if you give other people a slice, you don't get any pie. It's not like that. Yeah. My stepson got really interested when he saw the trailer for Shang-Chi. He likes comics, don't get me wrong, but I'm really jazzed that I can show him some of that stuff because I have Shang-Chi's first appearance. It's one of those things where I hope that it gets him to to love superheroes a little bit more because the comics that we've bonded over so far aren't superheroes. Oh, that's fun. That'll be really a fun movie night. You'll have to get a little snack situation going and popcorn and all the stuff. Target sells those giant tubs of red vines. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, heck yeah. Yeah. So you'll get two because I don't share those. No, that God no. That tub is mine. Yeah, right? <laughs> don't touch my tub. It's got my name on it. <laughs> 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 there are very few things that I will defend to the death, but red vines are one of them. Oh, yeah. And don't give me those plastic ass Twizzlers. They're the I, worst. I stand here and now. Who the fuck is eating Twizzlers? Someone's going to at me about Twizzlers. Probably not. Nobody asks me. But somebody is going to have some strong feelings about Twizzlers, I'm sure. But they're disgusting. They're like, it's like they're cough gross. syrup it's flavored like, plastic. One of my coworkers was like, oh, I actually like Twizzlers over Red Vines. This is the coworker <gasps> that I work with on a daily basis. And I was like, you know, we had a good run. I'm like, I'm really sorry that we can't keep working together. It's been fun. <laughs> it's good been life. real. <laughs> I will not be leaving a forwarding address. You know? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Oh. All right. Well, I definitely took us down a, a rabbit hole with that. What about you? What's been sitting in your head? Well, I'm going to go back to something that I'm sure most everybody has seen by now, but I'm just getting to it because, again, I am a little behind on my consumption of media. But my BFF Emily is in town and she pulled up the first episode of The Boys because she was like, you're going to like this. Oh, and yeah. Holy shit, did I? <laughs> oh, 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 I really resisted that show for a while. Dude, it's fucking, I've only seen the first episode and like mind-blowing. So here's the thing. The Boys comic is written by Garth Ennis. And it it's fun in comic format, but it is so extreme. I was like, I don't want to see this on TV. I'm like, I don't think I'm going to oh. like it. They actually did a much better job with it. And it took several friends telling me that I needed to watch that show before I actually sat down and watched it. Okay, so for those of you who are unfamiliar, like I was day before yesterday it's what i would call a more realistic approach to answering the question of no but what if there really were superheroes what would that look like for the world for society and i totally agree with the concept that if there were real superheroes they too would be swept up in the capitalism that makes us what we are as you know most of the world yeah they would be corporate celebrities 
Yeah. Or corporate paid mercenaries, as yeah. I consider them. Or both. In some situations. Or both, yeah. And and really just figureheads yeah. in some ways, which was super interesting, too. And that's a plot line I can get behind, as long as we can take down the system as well. <laughs> yeah. I'm ready for it. You know, in the show. In the show is totally what I mean. The next scene is just me flipping a table. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm really excited to talk with you about this further as you get more into the show because there are so many great moments where they do things that I didn't expect. Yeah. Well, cool. I'm going to have to right after this, probably go sit down and watch more of it so we can chat about it later. I have homework. Yeah. Sorry. I have to watch a show. (laughs) All right. So next episode, we're going to be discussing volumes three and four, which are dream country and season of the mists. Season of the Mist is actually, I think, my favorite of the Sandman story arcs. One of the, like the best stories that's ever been done in comics, personally. Oh, nice. Well, good. We'll be back in two weeks, and until then, we'll see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Ten Cent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Fraser and Mike Thompson. Written by Jessica Frazier and edited by Mike Thompson. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who goes by Look Mom Draws on Instagram. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to 10centtakes.com or shoot an email to 10centtakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is 10centtakes. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica is spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.